Good morning. I am sorry to disappoint you being a pinch hitter and all, but now I know what it feels like. We're in Lesson 7 of the book of Judges, and the title is First Things First, and we're coming from Judges chapter 6. I am going to leave Gideon and his fleece for next week, but we will cover the rest of the chapter through verse 35. Those of you who know me well know that I have a reputation for being a critic of uh, certain people in the Bible, certain bad boys or girls, people like Jonah and people like Esther and people like Naomi are on my hit list of people who are just not quite as pious as most Christians like to think of them. And so you may be licking your chops this morning saying, oh man, Gideon is just fresh meat. He's grist for the mill. Uh, And and I just have to tell you, maybe I'm wimping out this morning, but I I have a kind of sympathy for for Gideon. And I'm not quite so sure that he's altogether as bad as I have made him out to be in the past. I do not mean to say that he is heroic in these early chapters, but I I do at least empathize a little. And maybe what I'm saying is because I I identify with Gideon, I don't want to be as hard on him as I would if I didn't identify with him. So we'll just take it from there. You know that in, uh, in the developing argument of Judges, we come across a repeated theme, and you certainly see that uh, beginning in verse 1 of our text. Again, the Israelites did evil. And so you see that cycle that repeats as it's laid out in chapter 2. Israel sins, they forsake God, they serve and worship the gods of the Canaanites, God turns them over to the enemy and they are afflicted until they cry out for help. God sends a deliverer and they are freed and they enjoy that freedom as long as the life of the, uh, of the judge, the deliverer continues. Well, there is that common thread found in our text as well, but there are some unique elements and I hope you'll see those as we, as we come across them in, in our text. And here's basically my approach for the lesson. I want to look at the various sections as this text uh, unfolds. And it really is beautiful to watch how each section contributes and builds upon the previous sections. And so what I want to do is look at those, and then I want to see how the dots connect and how the argument flows, and then from that, see if we can uh, derive some lessons for life for us. So let's start at the setting in Judges 6, uh, 1 through 6. No surprise that now the Israelites once again do evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord hands them over to the Midianites. Now, the Midianites are an interesting group, and I think we need to, to just think about them for a second because the oppression that Israel experiences here is a little different from the oppression that we've seen earlier in the book of Judges. You remember that Midian was the son of Abraham via Keturah in Genesis chapter 25, 
And it was the Midianites, also interestingly in Genesis 37, called the Ishmaelites uh, in verse 25 of Genesis 37. And I, that's a kind of an interesting correlation. But anyway, it was these Midianite traders who are on their way down to Egypt, who pass by when Joseph is in the pit. Joseph's brothers sell him to the traders. They take him to Egypt and then sell him there in Egypt as a slave. But the Midianites come up again in Exodus chapter 2. After Moses has murdered this uh, Egyptian, you remember that he finds out that the word is out. He flees from Egypt and he goes to the land of Midian. And there he, uh, he meets uh, this Midianite priest and he marries uh, one of his daughters, uh, Zipporah. And so uh, uh, you might say that Moses has uh, some family relationships uh, with them. Remember, too, that then the, uh, uh, the, his father-in-law accompanies him into the land, and this also then is a relationship that ties in uh, to the Kenites that we've seen in our text uh, earlier in uh, Judges. And, and also, you see, the Midianites were associated with the Moabites. Remember in Numbers, where in chapter 25, the Moabites said, well, if we can't get Balaam to curse our people, we can do this. And it was a, a Midianite woman who went into the tent with an Israelite man. And remember, she was run through with her Israelite lover. And this woman was a Midianite. Now, what happens is that the Midianites uh, are, are located to the east and, and often to the south of Israel. And these Midianites were nomadic peoples. So they were always moving about, not unlike the Israelites in their, in their early days. They were always moving about. And so when these Midianites are given power over the Israelites... They don't uh, come in the classic sense. You know, basically in the earlier things, let's just take Eglon and Moab. When the Moabites defeated the Israelites, they would have their Moabite outposts where they would have these military places and they would quell rebellions or insurrection and keep order and all of that. And you remember Eglon even had his uh, his place of residence or palace uh, on the western side of the uh, Jordan at Gilgal, and that is where he was executed by by Ehud. And and what would happen then is that there would be a, a either annual or semi-annual or some regular basis there would be tribute paid. That's what Ehud was tasked to do with other people. He was to pay the tribute, you might say the tax, to this country which which had ruled over them. But what you see with the Midianites is somewhat different. They're nomadic people, so they're not really stationary in the sense that they have their, their settled cities, so they're moving about. But somehow they had they gained military supremacy over the Israelites and every season, it was, it was like some relatives that just seemed to drop in, and they always drop in at the good times. You know, in the summertime, if you've got a pool, they're going to come then, not in the winter. And, and so when the crops were ready for harvest, then they would move in, and they were like a, like a throng of locusts. And they would just come in and just consume all of the goods. So if you had a wheat field that was growing, they'd take your wheat. 
And if you had cattle, they would literally help themselves to all your cattle. So they literally stripped the land. So it was far easier for an Israelite to have a Moabite uh, oppressor who charged a heavy tax. At least you kept some of your stuff. When the Midianites came, it was all gone if they found you. And so the text tells us in verses 1 through 6 that the Israelites literally headed for the hills. We had a little sampling of that in chapter 4 of the book of Judges where we see that village life had ceased and people were, uh, were staying off the main roads. Now, when it, was, when it was harvest season, the Israelites literally went off into the nooks and crannies. They hid in caves. They did everything they could. And you remember that Gideon is, is, uh, is threshing the, the wheat in a wine press, not the optimum way in which one would do your work unless you are trying desperately to preserve your crops and your goods from uh, the possession of the Midianites. So it's a very interesting oppression, you might say, that it uh, has a significant economic element as well as a military element. So these people were just making life absolutely miserable. And so you come to Israel's cry for rescue and God's response in verses 7 through 10. Now, in the classic mode in Judges, we would expect that when the Israelites cried out for help, God would send them a deliverer, right? It doesn't happen here yet. Who does he send? A prophet. He's got some words to say. And notice what the prophet then has to say. He reviews Israel's past history And he talks about all of the ways in which God has worked on Israel's behalf. He has rescued them out of their oppression at the hands of the Egyptians. He has brought them into the land. He has given victory over the uh, the Canaanites. And uh, God has been faithful to his people, but his people have not been faithful to him. Now, I think you have to see the emphasis in the text that is there in terms of the I. There is a pluralistic religion going on. Israelites, as I understand it, are worshiping God and the other gods. I don't think from what I read in the text that they have utterly forsaken God. They've just added the other gods in as kind of a hedge, a hedging of their bets, if you would. Uh, and so what God says is, in effect, when these things happened... Uh, look with me at verse um, 8. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord. That's God claiming exclusivity. The Canaanite gods didn't deliver you. The Canaanite gods didn't give you victory. As a matter of fact, when you had your military victories in Canaan, you were, you were shaming the Canaanite gods who were supposed to give the Canaanites the victory. I am the one who did all of this for you. And that person, that exclusive person, also gave you the command not to serve their gods. And that is precisely what you have chosen to do. Therefore, your sin is to disobey me. 
Now, what's interesting at this stage is that there is uh, nothing said that you would expect. The prophet does not call for repentance. Repent, therefore. It, it just stops right there. And, uh, and there's no indication of repentance. Now, remember when the angel of the Lord came to Bochim and, and rebuked the Israelites? What did they do? They cried. And you remember that I said, I'm not sure at that point whether that's real repentance or not. It was regret. We don't know that it was repentance. From what we read in this text, they don't even cry. They just hear the message and it just sort of falls flat. Now, I have to tell you that Dale Ralph Davis is my hero when it comes to uh, his uh, commentary on this text, but I disagree with him a bit. He stops at this point and he says, when you see that there is no evidence of repentance here, we see God going ahead and sending a deliverer anyway. In other words, God is so gracious that he sends deliverance whether the Israelites re repent or not. I don't think so. I think what I see in the text is there is no repentance here. God is so gracious, he continues to work to bring them repentance. Or I should say to bring them to repentance so that deliverance may come. Deliverance does not come in our text, folks. Deliverance does not come in our text. It will not come until Israel is in right relationship with God. So God is graciously working in a stubborn, stiff-necked people's heart, and he will bring them to repentance. But it is not because they are cheering God on at this point. It is in spite of them and their sin. So you could say men are consistent here, as they always have been in Judges and throughout all of history. Now, I call the next section between God and Gideon in verses uh, 11 through 27 of chapter 6. It's a long section, and in my opinion, it's the critical section uh, that we must deal with. So look at what the angel of the Lord does. The angel of the Lord appears here. I, I don't understand it, but, but somehow this author has something to do, uh, uh, some thing about trees that, that sort of catches his attention and I think is supposed to catch ours. In Genesis, it's the well that's a signal to important stuff. Here, it's trees. Now, <laughs> you got to say, if you live in the desert, man, any tree is a wonderful place to find. So maybe that's all it is. But here's the angel of the Lord, God manifesting himself, coming in person and, and sitting under this tree, this oak tree uh, that is apparently owned by uh, uh, Ophrah, or in Ophrah, that is owned by Joash, uh, Gideon's father. Gideon, as, as this scene is painted, here's this tree. Uh, here's the angel of the Lord sitting in the shade of this tree. And somewhere within sight of the angel of the Lord is this man in a wine press. Now, you understand that a, a wine press is, is, is uh, like a, a small pool. And so what you have is you would have uh, a certain place where, where you would have grapes and you would stomp on those grapes and then the juice runs off into a, into a cistern or a collector. And this is not going to be high. This is going to be low. Now, when you're threshing wheat, you do exactly the opposite. 
you want a place that's on high ground and you want a place that's within the, 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 in the, in the face of the winds. So when you throw your grain up into the air, the wind blows the chaff away and the, and the grain remains, or at least that's the theory. So you have to understand that this is not the proper tool for the job. Where's my friend John Marr? I know that he knows that I use the chisels that he gives me to scrape gaskets off engines. It's not the tool for the job, but it's close, John. It's close. Now, when you take a wine press and you want to thresh grain, it isn't even close, folks. It's the wrong tool. It's using a hammer when you're supposed to have a screwdriver. And, and, and so here he is, but it's all to show us how desperate circumstances were. Their things were so uh, vulnerable to these hordes that would come in that he's literally hiding as low as he can. And it's just a desperate, pitiable condition uh, that we see Israel in. And Gideon exemplifies that. And along comes the angel of the Lord and says to him, The Lord is with you, courageous warrior. Now, when I've preached this before, I, 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 I saw this as the angel of the Lord saying, the Lord is with you. <laughs> Laughing to himself, you're like, you courageous warrior. It's like you wimp. And, 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 I, and, and I saw it as almost a joke. But I don't think that's really valid. I think what you see is the courageous warrior is linked to the Lord is with you. This is a prophecy of what he will be. And, and so it's not, it's not a statement about his courage. It's a statement about what he will be when the Spirit of God comes upon him. And of course, that ought to be an encouragement to everybody in whom the Spirit of God dwells. Now look at Gideon's response. This is, this is fascinating. And it depends, uh, this is similar to the, the, the translation that Martin read. But look at verse 13. Gideon said to him, pardon me. <laughs> He's like, what's wrong with this picture? The Lord is with you. And he says, pardon me, but if the Lord is with us, why has such disaster overtaken us? What he's saying is, it doesn't look like the Lord is with us. Do you see where I am standing here in a wine press trying to thresh grain? Who's telling me the Lord's with us? And, and then he goes on, which is fascinating because it tells us that this man, and I take it the other Israelites, are aware of what God has done in the past. Here is not a people who have no memory of God's deeds. They may have no experience of them, but they have no, uh, but they do have a memory of God's deeds. And he says, where are all his miraculous deeds our ancestors told us about? We've been hearing Bible stories as we were growing up. I'd like to see a little of that action here. Where is God if God is with us? It doesn't look like it to me. Uh, let's see, where did I leave off? They said, did the Lord not bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. That's a kind of a fascinating misunderstanding and especially right after the prophet has told them what was wrong i mean did gideon not hear what the prophet said why doesn't he get it let me give you some suggestions one every man does what's right in his own eyes when you are in disobedience to god god's word doesn't make sense whether it comes from his 
Bible or whether it comes from a prophet. When you are disobeying God's word, his word doesn't make sense because you're acting in accordance with what you see to be right. And it appears that Gideon was operating in that. Secondly, Gideon knew about God in an in, in intellectual way, but he did not know God in an experiential way. Isn't that what God was saying? Why would leave the, uh, the Canaanites in the land? So that they would experience his mighty power. But if you're disobeying God and you're not pursuing the enemy, then you're not seeing God at work in your life. So he's saying, I heard the stories, I've just never seen it. Well, that's not an indictment about God. That's an indictment about Gideon and his fellow Israelites. You haven't experienced God because you haven't trusted and obeyed God. Third thing we need to note here, and I I have not seen, it's probably there, but I have not yet seen a commentary which calls attention to the fact that the you in all of these instructions to Gideon is singular, not plural. Now, what's interesting about that then is when he says, the Lord is with you. Hey, folks, he knew Hebrew. <laughs> and, you know, God says, the Lord is with you. He said, you, period. You, singular. You, Gideon. And Gideon keeps saying, well, wh- wh- what do you mean? He's Where is he with us? God's talking about his relationship with Gideon, period, at this moment although his implications of that will affect Israel as nation. So Gideon goes off on this, wait a minute, where are you with Israel? Where are you with that? And it's not until this next verse that God says and makes it clear to Gideon, I'm talking to you personally, Gideon. I'm talking to you specifically, Gideon. And so he says in verse 14, then the Lord himself turned to him and said, you have the strength or go on this your strength, deliver Israel from the power of the Midianites, have I not sent you, singular? All of a sudden, the light comes on. I mean, Gideon would have been a whole lot more comfortable talking about (laughs) y'all, you know, and speaking of this corporate way, and all of a sudden, God's saying, I'm talking to you, partner. I'm talking right to you. It's like Isaiah in chapter 6. Who shall go and who will I, who, who shall I send and who will go for us? There's only one guy standing there in the room, folks. It doesn't take a genius to figure it out. And all of a sudden, now we see Gideon gets it. In verse 15, he says, But Lord, how can I, singular, of course, deliver Israel? Just look, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest of my family. I don't have any status. Our family doesn't have any status. I don't have any pull. I'm just a nobody in, in, in this whole a big scheme of things. What have I got to bring to the table? I don't have anything that really puts me in a place where I should step forward into leadership. The Lord says to him in verse 16, Ah, but I will be with you. You will strike down the whole Midianite army. It's kind of an inexpression. They will strike them down as one. And, and there are different ways of looking at that. But, but it seems like what he's saying is, you're going you're gonna to bring about the demise of the whole Midianite uh, army. Now, Gideon has a request here. And it's a very fascinating one that I, I don't think I have really appreciated before. He says, give me a sign that it is really you who are speaking to me. 
Look at, look at this. He says, now, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you. He's not saying, give me a sign that you will do what you've said. That's going to come. He's got that one up his sleeve. He's saying, I want to be sure that I'm talking to God. Most of you are too old, but there were the days uh, of old where we had 10 party lines. And if you were really lucky, you maybe had a two or three party line. And so you'd pick up the phone and (laughs) somebody would be on the other end and you'd say, hey, who is this? (laughs) You know, you wanted to be sure who you were talking to. It's a really good thing to do. So what he's saying is, I I live in this pluralistic uh, theological world where there are all kinds of gods. There's, there's this God, there's Baal, there's the Asherah, there's all these other things. And, and, and I mean, how do I know who I'm talking to? For somebody living in that world, that's not really an unreasonable question at all. They'd like to know they're talking to the right source. And, and so God, th- then here's what he says. This is the fascinating part. He says, please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. He asks for a sign. Now he asks the angel of the Lord to wait for him to go get a sacrifice. Why is that? Because he expects if it is genuine worship, if it is worship of the true, the one true God of Israel, something will happen in that worship which will make it clear God is there and he is alive. Now, it happens here in this text, does it not? Because what happens is, when he brings all the sacrifice and he sets it out, he's got the, the meat and then he's got the broth and he sets it on a stone and, and the angel of the Lord puts out his staff and what happens? Out of the rock comes this fire. Whoosh! Consumes the whole sacrifice. Would you not call that a sign? But my point is, he expects in the act of worship, he expects God to be there and to manifest himself. Now, think down the trail a little bit in, in the book to Manoah and his wife. Do you remember in chapter 13 when God has come, the angel of the Lord has come, and he says to Manoah's wife that you're going to have a baby, you're going to have Samson. And, and uh, they want to know, you know, who are we talking to here? And once again, they offer a sacrifice, and what happens there? You remember the angel of the Lord ascends in, in the flames. He ascends up and disappears. And Manoah says to his wife, whoa, this was God. And, and if we saw God face to face, we, we're not going to live. That's exactly the response that we have here with Gideon. He's saying, oh, man, if this is really God, and it obviously is, I'm dead meat. How can anyone be in the presence of a holy God? How can a holy God be in my presence? It's just not going to work. By the way, it's that same logic that we're going to see in 1 Kings chapter 18. When Elijah says to those who were following the gods of Baal, he makes his contest and he says, let them worship their God their way and let's see what happened. You remember what happened? They just got bloodier and bloodier. By cutting themselves up. They went on and on and on. And finally they just ran out of gas and it was over. Nothing happened. Now, when Elijah comes and offers the sacrifice to the Lord, 
God not only consumed the sacrifice, but he consumed the water and the stones and everything else. Everybody said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is the way God distinguishes himself in a pluralistic world, which believes there is a multiplicity of gods. He shows he is God and no one else. So that's what, that's what Gideon has done. And I don't fault him for that. I mean, given where he's coming from, I don't fault him for wanting to be really sure he's talking to the right God. Once he's come to that point, now he must obey him as the only God and his fellow Israelites must uh, do likewise. So he's now come to that point and in verses 25 and 26, God says to him, okay, you've come to this realization. So that night he receives a revelation and God says to him, Now, what you have expressed in private, I now want you to express in public. You have identified with me and you have distanced yourself from the gods of the land. Now I want you to make this a public witness. It's sort of like baptism, if you would. This is sort of Gideon's baptism experience. And God says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get a a pair of oxen and I want you to go pull up and tear down this altar that has been that's for offerings made to Baal. Tear down that altar, and I want you to take your father's prize bull. Now remember, folks, when the Midianites came, they stole the animals. You think they're not after the prize bull? I mean, this is the one that you use to to, to cultivate your crops and and whatever. This is this is cash in the bank, and and somehow this bull's seven years old. And somehow this bull has survived seven years of those Midianites. His dad every year said, whew, at least we got the bull, you know. Well, now that bull is going to be sacrificed. Uh, and, and, and so this, the, the bull is offered on the sacrifice. And the ultimate insult is that the, it, the firewood is going to be the Asherah pole, the wood that is the image. So here you have Baal's altar torn down. A bull, remember, a bull is the symbol of Baal, right? As you see the golden calf, whatever, when the Israelites uh, worship it there on Exodus 32. The bull is the symbol of the Canaanite God. That symbol is put to death and sacrificed, and it's done on the wood of another altar, of another uh, worship pole made out of wood. I mean, that is like saying to the Canaanite gods, in your face. Is it not? And he does that now. He has to do that so that everybody will know uh, of his faith in God. I call verse 27, Gideon's faint-hearted obedience. You might call that, doesn't one of the stores call it midnight madness? <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what Gideon's defense will be. Oh, I just had this stroke of madness in the middle of the night and went out there and what did I do anyway? So he goes out with 10 of his servants, tears down uh, the, the altar to Baal, sacrifices the, the prize bull on the wood of the Asherah pole, and uh, he does it all in the middle of the night. Now, I think we can all agree that is probably not the most courageous thing to do, right? But he did what God said. Give the guy credit, folks. Morning is coming. And you're going to figure out, people are going to figure out what's going on, and they are not going to be happy. 
So, here we come to uh, what I call Beyond Gideon, preparing the Abiezrites to fight the Midianites. See, this is not just about Gideon. This is about Israel and their sin. God is working through Gideon, but more people are involved than that. So here you have this story where Gideon's actions come to light in verses 28 to 30. Next morning, people get up. And, and obviously, this altar and all these things are, are there for the use of the townspeople. And the townspeople wake up in the morning and they see the altar torn down, the Asherah pole is, is burned up, and the ox, the prize uh, uh, bull, has been, has been sacrificed. And you can imagine, now this is his father's bull. It's like blowing up his father's tractor. And so his father has got a huge economic loss. Would you not agree in all of this? And generally speaking, you know, it's bad enough when son borrows his dad's car and wrecks it. But man, this guy has done worse. He's burned down the farm. And and now his father gets up, but all of the other men in the city get up. And they see this and they say, what a horrible offense. What a terrible thing has happened. We need to find out who this is and he needs to die. Isn't this a great revelation of how far things have gotten in Israel? Now, you remember that under Israelite law, a rebellious and disobedient child was to be taken before the elders and stoned. It isn't that, one, uh, that a man's son could not or should not be put to death under certain circum- circumstances. But folks, you don't put a man to death under Israelite law for worshiping or for tearing down false idols. You give him a medal for that. So the people of this town are Israelites. They're Israelites who have so uh, embraced the Canaanite religion that they're now willing to execute a boy for doing away with this. Now, my sense is, again, that they were, they were pluralists in the sense that they said, fine, you want to worship the God of Israel? Fine. Just don't be exclusive about it. Don't tear down our altars. Leave our, leave our bull alone and our Asherah poles. Well, he's done the bad thing. They're ready to kill him. Here is where Joash, his father, steps up to the plate. That's what I love. Gideon isn't here, folks, other than being accused, maybe being held as though they're going to take him and, and, and execute him in some way. Now it's his father who steps up to the plate and begins to lead. And for whatever reason, God has used this incident to convince the father that this whole business about worshiping Baal is nonsense. See what he's, remember how Isaiah would talk about how you take a piece of wood and you, and you burn some of it for your firewood and you take the rest of it and you carve it up and, and then you put gold plating on it and you bow down before it and you carry it around, can't speak, can't hear, can't do anything. Saying it's no God at all. That's what his father has figured out. He says, whoa, whoa, wait, hold on one second here. You're saying that my son has torn down Baal's altar. And he's also taken the Asherah pole and he's cut that up and burned it. Um, so how big is Baal? I mean, can't Baal handle his own battles? Let Baal deal with him. Why do we have to do that? If Baal's really a, a God that's so great that we ought to worship him and serve him, then let him handle it. It's his job. And that's why he renames his son Jerubbaal. Let Baal contend with him. Take my boy on if you're there. And so he obviously puts all of this down. And, and the last 
verses that we'll study today are this thing where the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people from the east, come across the uh, the river and they're going to go through what appears to be their normal cannibalization of the land and destroying everything. And what happens? They, they blow the trumpet. They summon the Abiezrites. That's Gideon's clan or Joash's clan. And those of Manasseh, that's the larger part. That's the tribe... And then the other tribes uh, of Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. And they're all ready to go to war. Now, let's go to the conclusion. Because I want you to see this thing as it all fits together. And I say, it all began with one. If we're going to understand this text, we have to see the sequence of actions and how God orchestrates His work amongst the Israelites to bring not just one man to repentance and faith and action, but to bring the Israelites to repentance and faith and action. How does he do it? He works through Gideon. Granted, Gideon is a cracked pot. He is, he is a less than a noble individual, but God gives this, this man sufficient courage and faith in who God is so that he acts and burns, it, as it were, their, their theological bridges, their idolatrous bridges, that forces his father to make a decision. And his father opts to go for his son and the God whom he has chosen to follow. And so he says, anybody that touches my boy, I'm going to kill. That forces the clan and the people of the city to say, wait a minute, how come Baal hasn't done anything? Why hasn't anything happened? Because Baal is worthless. That's why. And now that they see that, I think now the words of the prophet that had been given earlier in our text, all of a sudden the words of the prophet come true and they say, oh, aha, that aha moment, Aha! God is telling us that we've been going the wrong way. We have forsaken Him. It isn't that God forsook us, Allah Gideon. It's that we forsook God. And God was showing His faithfulness to His people by giving them adversity, by giving them into the hands of, of the Midianites. God has been faithful. So He worked in Gideon. That brought about a change in his father. That brought about a change in the people of the town. That brought about a change and a commitment on the part of that tribe of Manasseh. And that brought others involved as well to the point where they would trust God and they would fight the enemy. That's what God did. One man. It doesn't have to be a man, I might add. There's, you could say there was one woman who had a hammer and a tent peg. Or, or Deborah or whoever it might be. God doesn't need to start with a majority. If I may say so, God doesn't have to have a moral majority. All he needs is one person who trusts in him. And that person's faith will impact other people. Think about the great movements, whether it's Luther or Calvin or some of the great uh, 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 revivals that have taken place. God starts oftentimes with one person who has been sold out to trust in God and to forsake 
those idols, whatever they may be, that are, that are contradictory to serving God, to trust God alone. And God has worked powerfully in that person's life. And other people then come around that and there's a huge movement because it starts with one. And, and all I'm saying is that when you look at my next point, the kind of people God chooses, the typical cop-out is to say, well, you know, I, I'm not big and strong. It's just come up with the same stuff Gideon did. I, I'm the youngest in my family, don't have a voice in the family. I, I come from a, a small clan. You know, wh- what can I do? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, God delights to use weak instruments because it's all about his glory, not about ours. It's about his glory. And so God uses this kind of person. Hey, I'll tell you, that ought to be encouraging. Is it not? That ought to be encouraging to us. God not only may use just one person to do something or begin something great, he may use a person that all of us would have written off and said, no way, not him, not her. God uses a process to build leaders. He doesn't choose leaders. He makes them. See, in our society, we look for the people who have all the talents, all the charisma, all the education, all the background, and we say, oh, what God could do with him or her. How God could do a mighty work. But the scriptures tell us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and the early part of chapter 2, God chooses the weak things and the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He picked the least likely to, to succeed when he picked his disciples. Acts chapter 4, they were amazed that these were unlearned and ignorant men. <laughs> Blue-collar guys. But God used them to turn the world upside down. God starts with people in whom he works to produce faith, and then he works through them to encourage others. The faltering obedience is nonetheless obedience. Do you remember I did a message some years ago called Partial Obedience is Disobedience? And that was when, uh, when uh, uh, Saul had not fully obeyed God and had not totally uh, wiped out all those that he was supposed to. I call this weak need obedience is obedience anyway. It is. Let's face it, folks. Can you not admit with me that some of the things that we have done that, that have obeyed God were really sissy things. I, I mean, we didn't do it in a bold and brassy. It's not the kind of thing you'd like to have advertised on YouTube. You know, everybody to see what a great guy or gal you were and what a bold action you took. You look back and say, man, you know, it was, I did that by the skin of my teeth. My knees were knocking. I was shaking in my boots. But the question is, did you obey? Did you obey? Not how heroic did you look, but did you obey? And so I, I want to say for Gideon, hey, folks, he obeyed. Was it the superlative kind of thing where you'd like to have it written up and everybody read about it? I don't think so. But he obeyed. It may have been midnight, folks, but he obeyed. That's a lot better than some of us. God ministers to others through our weaknesses. What I want to say is, It's through weak instruments like those we see in the book of Judges. And and seeing how God has used them that tells us that seeing God work through weak people is what gives other weak people confidence. 
When we look, isn't that true with Peter and Paul? We look at Peter and Paul and we say, ah, that Peter, he's a man for me. We look at Paul and say, forget it. He's too strong for us. So we identify with Peter, foot in the mouth, you know, says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing, denies his Lord. That's me. Here I am. God uses weak instruments in order to encourage others. Because strong people are people that we don't identify with and somehow we don't recognize that the work that is done is really God in them rather than them working for God. First things first. What I want you to see in this text is God doesn't give deliverance. He does not give military victory until they got things spiritually straight. It had to be that way with Gideon. The first thing Gideon had to do is he had to figure out who was his God. And then he could move on to these other things. Folks, it all begins with Jesus. It all ends with him too. But it all begins with him. It all begins with a right relationship with God. That's the first thing. Recognizing the Lord, he is God. He is God alone. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the Savior, the only Savior, the only way to heaven, the only way to eternal life. You start there, exclusively God. And it isn't God and, God plus, it's God only that this text tells us about. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Okay, I got a couple seconds left on that clock. Privatizing faith. That's one of the characteristics of our society. Have you noticed? Privatization and pluralization are, the, are two of the dominant factors in, in our uh, society. So we say it's okay to have a vast number of gods, whether it be a Buddhism or, or Islam or whatever. It's okay to have all of these gods. What isn't okay is to have exclusivism. What isn't okay is to take your faith and make it public in a way that challenges other people to be saved, to renounce their religion, to renounce their false trust in God and to trust uh, in gods and to trust in God alone. There is that set of forces. And, And what I want to say is God says to Gideon, you can't have a private faith. Good. You offered an offering to me. You saw that I am God alone. Now, tear down those altars. Tear down those altars. I think that's what baptism is about. Baptism is saying, I have renounced everything else. I have renounced everyone else. It is Jesus Christ alone. It is my identification with him through the work of the Spirit that I die to sin and I'm raised to newness of life. It's only him. That takes care of the pluralism, and it says, I can't be private about my faith. God says we are to go public. Pluralism says, oh, you can have all these other gods. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else. 48.11, we read exactly the same thing. Pluralism today, how does that fit? Uh, we have other faiths that will worship even in within a 10-block range. We've got all kinds of different faiths represented. But it seems to me that it's something that we may need to come to grips with as well. 
And I would say this. You have pluralism when you diminish God or you diminish the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God says it is all God. It is all God. When you look at this, you don't come away saying, wow, what a great man Gideon was. If it hadn't been for Gideon, why, Israel would have been in trouble. No, it was God. It was God taking people who didn't repent when the prophet told them what was wrong and led them to the point where they could see that God alone was God and that they must trust in him. It was he who started it. It was he who carried it through. It was he who received the glory at the end. It's always about him. When we say, in effect, or act as though somehow it's God plus, and we diminish God's sovereignty, and we start emphasizing the mechanism, the methodology, or the men, and that happens in evangelical churches. It somehow becomes, I'm dependent upon this man. I'm dependent upon this person. No, you're not. Dependent upon God, God alone. That's what it's about. A sovereign God who is sufficient. One last thing. Our worship service should manifest the presence of God. I, I was struck by that in this text. How does Gideon and how do others discern whether God is really real or not? They expect to see it in worship. And I was thinking about this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Listen to what it says. Verses 24 and uh, 25. Now, the context is, is whether it is, has to do with speaking in tongues and prophecy. But it says this. If an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying... He will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and he will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so that he will fall down and worship exclaiming, God is really among you. That's, I think, the goal for us. When we come together and worship, my prayer is not only will we say, God was here. God is among us. But unbelievers will see and they will hear and they, their sin will be revealed and the righteousness of Jesus will be revealed and the fact that Jesus' sacrificial death is the only way to heaven, that they will say, God is there. I don't know how. I'm not sure I understand it all. But I know when I see that church at worship, I know God is there. That's what we want. That's what God expects and that's what God wants to do. In this church, one, I said one last thing. I'll say this. It starts with one person, and then his father, and then a clan. What if that one person were here in this church today? What if God were to start working in one ministry group in a way that caused all of the rest of us to see God's power and work in a special way that gave us courage and faith to act? And that God were to use that to somehow impact a much broader group of people. It only started with one. And it spread from there. And that one wasn't so hot. Would you agree? Father, we thank you for this text. We pray that you would use us. You would use uh, individuals within our body to encourage one another to faith to use the gifts of, uh, uh, that you've given to inspire others to, to step out in trusting you. 
Pray that that would impact not only our whole church, but our community and perhaps a much broader area. If there's someone here apart from the Lord Jesus, pray that they might see that they are helpless apart from you and your provision that comes in the person of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. Help them to understand they are sinners and that their sins can be paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name and for his glory. Amen.